hear from the Lord uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Me again. Uh, back. Yeah, so good morning again. And if you're joining us for the first time, you're like, wow, what a passage uh, to come to. And the reason being is that we've been in a series called Living Life as a Relationship Series. And we've been going through the different roles that we have as people uh, living in society. We started off talking about friendship, and then we talked about singleness and the, purposes of sing- the purpose of singleness. And we talked about dating and relationships. Uh, then we talked about marriage. Uh, Pastor Howard a couple weeks ago talked about sexuality as well. Um, then we took a little bit of a break. Uh, remember the story of uh, Frankie and his missions, expeditions in uh, Eastern Africa. Uh, and here we are here today uh, on this topic. And you might be like, wow, this is my first church service and this is a little bit awkward. I can guarantee you maybe it's a little bit more awkward for me as my in-laws are here as well. Uh, and my parents are here and I'm, I'm charged to preach on the topic of sex. So... Hold on tight. It's going to be good. Uh, we're going to get uh, right into it. And hopefully not too awkward, like the first conversation you might have had about it from your parents or how it was back uh, in school. Uh, but I want to ask you this question as we start off uh, the sermon here is that what is, the li- what is life's highest pleasure as we're on this topic of sex? And uh, some people would argue that it's quality time with friends and family. That's life's highest pleasure. Time to yourself. Time outdoors is being out in nature, enjoying the sun, or enjoying fresh air, feeling the, way, uh, the wind in your face. That's uh, uh, the highest pleasure in life. Some of you are like, just sleep. Right now, like, I just want to sleep. That's life's highest pleasure for me. Doing your favorite hobby, whatever it is. Snuggling up on the couch. Anyone with me? Snuggling up on the couch with a good cup of coffee and a good book. And just having the day to yourself. Uh, Maybe enjoying some tasty food. uh, Whatever it is, your favorite dish uh, you love to enjoy. And what a Sunday, as I mentioned, that, that, that it is, like being baby dedication, and now we're addressing the topic of sex. It just so happens to be like that. That's what our church is all about. You preach through the gospel, you preach through the word, and there's topics that no matter how hard it is to talk about, you're going to have to talk about it because it's about 
life. And we've all had our fair share of awkward conversations about this topic. I remember my first one in grade seven, the awkwardness of the community nurse coming into the class and uh, just playing the video uh, about how babies are born. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, I was not ready uh, for that. Or maybe you remember when your parents sat you down for that conversation and it was super awkward and you're like, are we done now? <laughs> like, can I walk out of this room? Uh, and it doesn't need to be that way because as I mentioned, sex is a part of life and we're going to talk about it. And as we talk about this and I ask you what is life's highest pleasure, often the answer is sex. That's what most people would say in our culture, in, in our time, sex is life's highest pleasure. But what is the purpose of sex? See, if pain tells us something is wrong with us, what is the purpose of pleasure? What does pleasure point us towards? As John Piper, uh, he wrote in his book, Sex and Supremacy, of course, he would write a book like that. Uh, as John Piper writes, he says this, God created us with, a, with sexual passion so that there would be language to describe what it means to cleave to him in love and what it means to turn away from him to others. So there's this graphic image of what it looks like to be deeply connected to one another through sex. And in the same way, God has given us that symbol of what it looks like for us as well. Like if we have a physical image of what it looks like to be connected to someone, we're also to be connected to God in an even deeper way. There's also the graphic image of what it looks like to betray God, right? In the second part of the definition, uh, God has given us sex to show us what it looks like to turn away from him. Imagine, or not imagine, read the scriptures and you see all the illustration and even in the passage today of how Israel, the people of God, they committed adultery uh, against God through pro with prostituting with other nations, right? Like the image comes up over and over again that we get this image that when someone cheats on someone else, we, in that betrayal, in that moment, in the hurts and pain that you feel, that's what God experiences, but even more. So when it comes to the topic of sex, the problem isn't really our hearts wanting pleasure because, or desire. Uh, that's not the issue because God created it. Uh, the issue is what is the ruling desire that we have in our hearts? And what do I mean by this? Well, before we go into the text, just give me a moment here to flesh that out a little bit, what I mean by pleasure and how it's been twisted in our culture and in our time. See, pleasure, it isn't a bad thing. You know, words like sex is a taboo word, a dirty word, just don't talk about it in the church, but it's not a bad thing because God created it and God gave it as a gift to humanity to experience. Uh, even though God gave us pleasure, this pleasure is never meant to be an end to itself. As David, uh, Paul David Tripp in his book, Sex and Money, which I also uh, recommend. Maybe I don't have it up there. Maybe I do. There we go. He says this, pleasure exists as a sign of the existence of the one in whose arms I will enjoy the only pleasure that can satisfy and give rest to my heart. Pleasure exists to put God in my face and remind me that I was made by him and for him. Pleasure, like every other created thing, was designed to put God at the center, not just of my physical joy, but of the deepest thoughts and motives of my heart. Pleasure exists to stimulate worship, and not of the thing, but of the one who created the thing. The glory of every form of pleasure is meant to point me to the glory of God. And this is not just true for uh, sex. Uh, this is true for the pleasures of all things, the pleasure of food, which I mentioned before, the pleasure of a fine cup of coffee, the pleasure of seeing something that is beautifully designed, that you just marvel at, the pleasure of hearing amazing music, the pleasure of sleeping, 
and resting and the joy that some of us uh, get from that, the pleasure of touching that really soft shirt, that silk, that you're like, wow, that's beautiful, the pleasure of that, or the pleasure of human affection, or the pleasure of sex, all point us to the glory of God, and that's why God has given it to us. And I go back here, I'm boring this big idea from Paul Tripp again. He says this, a good thing can be a bad thing when it becomes the ruling thing. And that's the issue that we have here, that pleasure and sex and intimacy, all those things aren't bad, but when it, become, it becomes a bad thing, when it becomes the ruling thing in our lives, when it becomes the only thing, uh, when it becomes the most important thing in our lives, that's when we get in trouble. And you see God, he, he's not anti-pleasure or anti-joy. He's not like, I don't want you to have fun. I don't want you to enjoy pleasure in life. God isn't that. Everything he made in the beginning, it was good, and that included sex. So God isn't just uptight about sex because it's his idea. He gave that to us after all. So God knows what's best. God, he knows that when he made sex, there needed to be boundaries, and he needed to be celebrated and enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. And some of us thought that just getting married, because of that thought that marriage and sex come together, some of us, even though we have issues as with, with, with our sexual struggles, we think that getting married would solve the issues that we've had encountered before, but it hasn't. And why is that? Well, but something, you see, something along the way happened, and that's something called sin, when we thought we knew better than God. And using the words of author Ted Roberts in Pure Desires, he says this, our sexuality is a gift from God. But hell's desire is to turn it into a dagger, to plunge it into the human heart. So that's something God created to be good. He has turned it around to destroy his people. You see, if pleasure is placed on the wrong thing, then what is bad will start looking real good. I'll say that again. If pleasure is placed on the wrong thing, then what is bad will start looking really good. Just think about the garden in the beginning, right? Like the garden, uh, where, what the serpent is. Like, hey, doesn't that fruit look good? Did God really say that? What was bad started looking really good when Eve and Adam and Eve's hearts started shifting and their, their, their understanding of pleasure and understanding what is good was being turned upside down. What's interesting, just doing a little research into the word pleasure, uh, the word pleasure comes from the Latin root placere, uh, which means to please. Uh, you're like, wow, that's, you know, what a discovery there. I kind of knew that about pleasure, uh, to please. But what's interesting about that is what do we read in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desiring for gaining wisdom, she took some of took some and ate it. What did we read in the beginning? She saw the fruit uh, of the tree and was good for food and what? And was pleasing. It was pleasing. That's the word. It was pleasing to the eye. The pleasure, her heart, her heart's desires were shifted in that moment away from God and towards what she thought was good. Something bad turned, uh, something, uh, some, something uh, bad turned into something good in that moment for her. See, this was the start Right there at that moment, the start of how something pleasurable, pleasurable things became distorted. Right there, right that moment. This was the start of a distorted view of sex and sexuality and most of our culture's understanding of sex in this broken world, which is what I'm naming the sermon, sex in a distorted, in a sex in a broken world. And this was when we started desiring the created more than the creator. 
It was in that moment we started desiring what was created, the things around us that give us joy and pleasure, which God ought have given to us freely, but we started craving those things more. We started craving the created things more than the creator who made it and gave it to us for good things. As John Mark Homer writes in The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, we consume things, and then things consume our hearts. Now, there's this cycle that the more we have, the more we want. Now, you might have heard this quote before by John Rockefeller, once the richest man in the world. He was asked how much money is enough, and his answer, just a little bit more. And I don't think this is true for money, but it's true for all things pleasurable. Thomas Aquinas, an influential Italian theologian in the 1200s, he was once asked a similar question, what would satisfy our desires fully? And he took some time to think about it. What would satisfy the human heart that's apart from God? And he came up from this answer, everything. You need everything in the world to satisfy the human heart. We will have to experience everything and everybody and be experienced by everything and everybody in order to feel satisfied. Eat at every restaurant, travel to every country, every city, every exotic destination, experience every natural wonder there is in the world, win every award there is possible, climb on top of every field, own everything there is to own, and make love to every partner we could possibly desire to make love to, and then maybe we will be fully, desire, uh, fully, uh, fully satisfied. See, this last point is so much in our culture that you haven't lived, some would argue, you haven't lived if you haven't had sex. If you haven't had the sexual experience, you, you, you haven't lived. You're not a person yet. Your sexual experience becomes your identity. And sex is seen in our culture as a commodity. As we just walk through the uh, malls and the ads that we see, uh, if you don't have any sexual experience, then you're seen as subhuman, right? You haven't lived. You don't know what life is all about. It doesn't make you... But I want to say this, that it doesn't make you any more or less of a man or a woman if you experience or don't experience sex. That's not the purpose of it. That's not the reason for sex. And since intimacy is so much more than the physical, you can experience intimacy actually without the sexual experience. We talk about that in friendship. We talked about that with having a spiritual people around us that connect with us in a deeper way and move us more towards God. We think this. Uh, we think this, what I just described, this, uh, you, know, you know, like sex is a commodity, uh, something out there, right? It's only for the Bachelorette, 19th season, something like that. I don't watch it, but I'm saying what I read, something like there's 44 couples over the, since, since the beginning uh, of the show, uh, but only like 14 couples are still around, something like that. Uh, we, we're, we're, in a, we're in a fan crazy time that talks about sex, that craves sex. And we think this is only happening out there, but I dare say this morning that's happening in here, in our churches, in the church, within the Christian community. We also need to talk about this topic because many Christians are in the midst of some kind of sexual struggle. Many think that getting married would solve issues with sex, but it doesn't, and you're disillusioned. There are married couples in the church who do not experience the beautiful, intimate, sexual oneness that God has designed and feeling ashamed and down. There are many Christians living a double life. I was just having a conversation with, with, a, uh, with another Christian this week, and she was just saying the church is so judgmental. 
that we say all these things, but there's people within the church also doing the same thing. And she was like, judgmentalism is what's pushing people away from God, not God himself, but people that are living this double life. There are many Christian singles who are fighting temptations, but also many more that are succumbing to them and falling to them. See, people have shared with me um, how their marriages are breaking apart because they discovered that one of the spouses is addicted to pornography. I've had those tough conversations, not just all around within the city, that the tough brokenness that really uh, that destroys the couples and their marriages and how much of a struggle that every time one of the spouses succumbs to is it, like they're being cheated on over and over and over again. And over recent years, just pastors, just speaking, like these are my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that serve as pastors, uh, just pastors and Christian leaders over the years that are caught up in sexual misconduct. They're caught up in sex scandals and allegations of abuse. I was talking to my mentor a few, a couple months ago, and I was saying, hey, I want to finish well. What's one thing that I should keep in mind? And the one thing he said to me was, Doug, remain sexually pure. That was one thing. Not preach better. Not exegete the scriptures better. Not walk closer. Not, not any of that. Though all that is a part of it, but remain sexually pure because that's how the enemy is getting at the flock. So if you're struggling, I'd like to, today, that's what the passage is about. It's not a message of shame. It's not a message of blame. It's not a message of tearing you down. It's actually a message to bring you closer to God and to his loving arms to invite you in to receive this healing. And I'm not a professional trained counselor. We have some that are here, but I recommend you, if this is, these addictions, uh, these struggles are real uh, deep in your life, I want to recommend you. I can refer you to some great uh, Christian counselors that can help you through with your addictions. But I read this in Journey Canada, which is a ministry uh, that that works uh, in, in this topic. And this is something that a lot of times when we have a struggle, just to prime us a little bit, when we have a struggle, when we have, a, have something going on, when we have addiction, the first question they have the person ask and to fill out is this chart called the half chart, H-A-L-F, that when there's an addiction, uh, when there's some sort of struggle in your life, to look at this and to see what's going on, whether in the past or right now, whether there's any hurts, whether there's any anger going on, whether there's any longings, any fears. And often, we fall into these addictions and these, in, this, in this topic today, sexual behavior because of one of these categories that's happened. And we're finding our belonging, we're finding our identity, we're finding our worth in the actions that we're partaking in. So, how are we to view, in light of all of this, that's a long intro in a way, <laughs> in light of all of this, how are we to understand sex and how is God wanting to move us into a more holistic view of it? And I want to frame it in four questions taken from 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, which is read for us. And if we have these within our framework, within our dashboard, within our bulletin, whatever bulletins of our mind, whatever illustration you want to have, I would argue that it would help us to experience sexual wholeness in our marriages a bit more and less brokenness in general. The four questions is this, the who is your master question, the eternity question, the relationship question, and the ownership question. And these are ways for you to measure into your own heart what your view is on sex in these four questions. The first question is, who is your master? That's the question. Verse 
12, we read this, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered. There's that word. I will not be mastered or controlled or lorded over by anything. You save food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. What we read here in the very last verse here is that the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And some would argue, and there are many that would argue this stance, that sex before marriage isn't a sin. It's not sin, meaning it's not uh, against the will of God. Well, this word for sexual immorality literally translates as unlawful for unsanctioned sexual intercourse. Or it can also be translated as prostitution, unchastity, or fornication. And the word fornication simply means sex between two unmarried people. So I don't know. There's a lot of argument that goes on out there about whether God has said something like that. This is one of the passages that is fairly straightforward in speaking about that. But what this question is of the who is your master question, what this is really asking is that before we understand sex and the sexual struggles that we have, before anything, it really is a worship problem. That's what it all comes back down to first. It's a worship problem. It's who is your master kind of problem. It's who do you look to kind of problem. See, sex is, is not a, a religious thing. Sex is actually deeply spiritual. It's the most, one of the most sexual, uh, most spiritual, sex is one of the most spiritual acts there is possible between two people. And during sex, you're not just giving yourself away physically, but more importantly, spiritually. More important spiritually, your relationship to your own sexuality and the sexuality of others through this worship question, our understanding of sex and sexuality, it will reveal our hearts. It will reveal what it is that we worship. Who is the master? Is it me? Is it what I believe? Is it my own desires? Is that what I'm worshiping? Or is it the Lord? So your sexual life will always be an expression of what you truly worship. And I came across this book uh, this week called Sex and Culture. It's old. It's written in the 1930s. And you're like, wow, that's old school. What are we talking, Downton Abbey? You know, like I mentioned that a few times now uh, in, the, in this passage, Downton Abbey. And then I was talking to my wife, uh, just uh, talking about this other show. I'm like, what's that other show? Uh, like Downton Abbey? It's like Bridgerton. It's like, oh no, that's more like saucy. Like that, that's not, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the other end. Like, you know, don't, 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 don't mention it, which I just did. Uh, but Sex and Culture, during that time, he was, he was this English ethnologist and social anthropologist in Oxford and Cambridge. And he was doing research on 86 different societies in history. And this think of the Romans, think of the Greeks, think of any Eastern civilization as well. He was studying them. And he made this amazing discovery. His conclusions that the more a society develops, the more sexually liberal they become. It's almost hand in hand. As they develop, as they grow, they become more sexually liberal. And which, this is the main finding, which accelerates the social entropy of the society, leading to that society's downfall, losing creativity and expansiveness. He was saying within the study of the 86 different societies, he could predict at which point the society was going down and civilization is going to be uh, uh, obsolete. That was his finding uh, in it. That's chilling because it sounds a lot like what we talk about scripturally, talk about from the Bible. We would think that this J.D. Unwin was a Christian, except he wasn't. Except he wasn't. He was reading this and just explaining society and what he observed through history, uh, through his 
research. In other words, I would put this in a biblical term, put this in our own uh, term, that we get in trouble and it's not good when society makes sex its God. That when we grow to that point where we think we know what is best and sex replaces God, we get in trouble. And quoting Philip Yancey, uh, he had a commentary on this. He says this, Unwin preached a a message that few people want to hear. Without realizing it, though, Unwin may have subtly edged towards a Christian view of sexuality from which modern society has badly strayed. For the Christian, sex is not an end in itself, but rather a gift from God. Like such gifts, it must, not, it must be stewarded according to God's rules, not ours. See, human beings and human civilizations, we get in trouble when we start being our own masters, when we start setting our own boundaries, when we start thinking what is best. As a civilization, we go down. And the Gospel of Matthew talks about this. The Gospel of Matthew is all about God and his kingship and Jesus coming to reign. And Jesus says that our behavior is more directed by what's inside of us than what's actually happening around us. That's possible to hold on to him, hold on to God, uh, despite what's happening uh, around us. See, everything God created in the beginning is good, but humans, we have turned it into something that is not. And that is a heart issue. That's a worship issue. Because what is the heart? The heart is the emotion, a center of where we make those decisions. We've been saying that over and over again throughout this passage. You'll always give your heart away during any sexual struggle, during any view of of it that's unbiblical. You will always give your heart away before you surrender your body to what is wrong. Your heart is already there. Your heart is already before your actions. And Jesus says this in Matthew 527, 28, you have heard what it was said, you shall, com- you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, that your heart goes before your actions. Or Matthew 15, 18, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. So not just sexual immorality, but a whole uh, myriad of different uh, kind of things that don't please God. It all starts from the heart and what is going on. And the heart, it's, it's a worship issue. It's who is our Lord? Is it what I think is best? Is, what it, is it what I feel and the pleasure that I want? Or is it after God and what he would have of us? That's the first question, the who is your master question in terms of thinking about sex. Second question is the eternity question. I'll move a little bit quicker here. The eternity question. This asks, do you have eternity in mind in the ways that you live in this world? Do you have eternity in mind in the ways that you engage in pleasure uh, in this world? This is a question on perspective. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. When he raises us, I'm not sure many of us knows this, when he raises us from the dead and we're alive, it's forever. It's eternity of goodness and pleasure with him. The best thing you could ever think of. It's going to be a million, infinite times better than what it is you're experiencing here on earth. So the question of eternity is a question of perspective and of time. Our views and our actions on this earth are too short-sighted. It's too short-sighted, which causes us to experience issues. We're not looking far enough. And some of us just don't know how, uh, some of us, because we don't know the eternity question, we don't know how God has saved us for eternity and he wants to love us for eternity. Some of us, we, we go into these different actions because we don't know how loved we are. 
We don't know how infinitely loved and cherished by the God of the universe we are. That's where we go chasing the half, the hurts, the, the hurts and, and, and the pains and the different ways of life. Many of us struggle with this, and me included. Me included. But God, he has hardwired eternity into our hearts that we all long for paradise, but we will not find paradise here on this side of heaven, but we're searching for it. We're wanting for it. And Jesus is saying, here I am. I'm he here I am at the door. I'm knocking. I'm here for you. But we keep looking around for other things that we think is paradise, but we get disappointed. We get bitter. We get angry. We get anxious. And we jump to the next thing that we think is best for us. And many of us, we struggle with this eternity amnesia that some scholars call it. Uh, eternity amnesia. We forget that the greater things are to come because we forget that the greater things are to come, we settle for what's happening now. That this is it. That this life, that there's all there is to it. And if I believe that, if that is true, that this life is all there is, then YOLO is true. You only live once, so you might as well go and enjoy everything there is possible. But there is so much, so many things are great. Our life that's way better for us, that's waiting for us. This was illustrated to me. I've been at a few weddings lately, and they seem to be all buffets. And I'm a sucker in the beginning for overfilling my plate. Anyone else been there? You're in the salad, you know, the appetizer. You're filling half the plate. Oh, man, half my plate's gone already. You know, uh, half my plate's gone with, like, the salmon or the bread or the salad. And then there's a whole three other tables that's to come. And I didn't look far enough, whereas the guy across from me, he, you know, grabs one pea. You know, he grabs one. And then at the end, he's like, yeah, the prime rib. You didn't see it? You know, you didn't see it? I want to fill it with the prime rib. I want to fill it with the, the salmon at the end. I want to fill it with the good stuff that's coming at the end right now. I, I think the buffet illustration for me, I settle for the right now, right here. And it's good. I'm not saying that the, the salad is bad, okay? Like, you know, I'm not saying all that. I'm saying our, even in a buffet table, my sight is so short. And that's literally right in front of me. So what about eternity? The things that we don't see at this moment. There's a greater picture that's waiting, a greater life that's waiting for us in God. And too often, hear this, we settle for the crumbs of this life when Jesus is offering a feast. Too often, we settle for the crumbs, as good as they might be, and they are meant to be celebrated, and there are good gifts that God has given us, but it's nothing compared to the joy that we have in our Lord Jesus when we are with them forever. So it's when we have this eternal perspective that helps us to find joy in the moment. When we seek pleasure, it's usually a momentary thing, but it's transformed into joy and enjoyment. Pleasure is transformed into joy and enjoyment when we understand the moment and when it's properly understood. It's like transforming a cup of coffee that you just throw down for the sake of the caffeine versus sitting there and appreciating the sipping <laughs> and enjoying and understanding the cup of coffee. You guys have no idea what I'm talking about at this moment. Whatever it is for you, that you sit there and you understand. It's just me and you, coffee. I understand you. You understand me, how amazing this bean is, you know, just sipping and enjoying away. That's where pleasure is transformed into joy. And if I translate that into sex, sex isn't just to get off in that moment, but it's to be enjoyed fully and understood in the context of what God has made for us, the spiritual connection that we have in him. Thirdly, the third question is the relationship question. How is the value of relationship lived out in our actions and how we view pleasure? Verse 5, do, not, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a the prostitute? Never. 
Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. This is a relationship question because you belong to the members of Christ's body. You have relationship with people around you. So how does this affect your view of sex? Sex isn't just about the physical oneness, but it's about the spiritual oneness. There's a relationship that happens here. When a person starts feeling emotionally and spiritually connected to someone, where does it often lead? It leads to the physical. There's a connection to it. It's all related to one another, but it's about relationship. It's not done. Uh, it, it, we, we can't go around thinking sex is in, individualized because when we think sex is individualized, we get into trouble with relationship, with worship, with obedience. But since sex is about relationship, then sex can't be just about you. It can't be just about you. And I wonder how our views of sex would change if we thought about this way, how we value the other person, how we're actually in relationship with someone else. I remember during marriage prep, for me, that um, our pastor uh, was reminding us, like, he looked me straight in the eye, and he was like, Doug, do you know that Jess, uh, <laughs> do you know who Jess's father is? I'm like, yes, he's here right now, <laughs> like sitting in front. But he's like, no, no, do you know who her heavenly father is? Do you know who, what Jess's identity is? And he looked me straight in the eye, he's like, you're about to marry Jess, who's God's daughter. Do you realize that? That she is the daughter of the king. That when we engage in this relationship, in marriage, we uh, engage in intimacy, it's not just someone else. It's not just for your own sexual uh, and selfish ambitions. It's your, 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 your relationship with God's daughter. And because of this relationship, you can't think on your own. You can't just think about what's best for you. And that changed my view. That shifted me into the right place. So this question of, Relationship is important in terms of how we enjoy pleasure. Is it just for myself, or is it all the other the, the people that are, are part of that uh, a, a part of it as well? That's part of um, uh, what you're engaging in. That it's not about selfish desires and ambitions, but in any pleasure, there's a relational aspect to it as well. Fourthly and lastly, the ownership question: Who do you belong to? This. I would argue maybe it's one of the most outside of the worship question that would dictate the actions that we take, who you belong to. Verse, uh, verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. That you were bought at a price, that you were not your own, that your, your, our bodies, yes, we will live in a time where we say, my body, my choice, and before you go uh, tear me down for saying this, I'm not putting down the person's body and their worth and their choice. That's not what I'm saying here at all. I'm saying here, this is actually an argument that takes the my body, my choice even higher. That God's standard is even higher than that. That God's standard is even better than that. That God's standard is actually raising that, that we isn't just my body and my choice, but we belong to God. To my last point about how Jess belongs to, is the daughter of the king. That you, as you encounter with other people, you're encountering God's royalty. That you're encountering his son, you're encountering his daughter. That for you, you are also his son, his daughter. That we belong to God. And this is not meant to be threatening, like he bought us as a threat. It's not restrictive. It's actually meant for us to flourish 
for us to be properly understood because many of us, we don't understand, and I get in trouble too, that when I forget who I am, I chase for things that tell me who I am, that, 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 that feed into my worth, that feed into my identity, but we are, belong to God, and this means we're protected by God and what he thinks of us. This means, and we realize this, that every human being is fearfully, wonderfully made, that every person is made in the image of God and has worth, that our bodies and our, our lives and our bodies, we belong to God. And this is not a, a, a bad thing. It's an amazing thing because we read here that Jesus, he died for us. He died for you so that you would experience this life. Now, God, he knows we tend to chase after the created instead of the creator. He knows it's an issue. He knows that we struggle with this. He knows that a good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes the ruling thing in our, in our hearts. And maybe you're thinking, what's the big deal? I'm fine. I'm chasing all these things and my soul feels okay. But the question here this morning is, is does it really? How are you really doing? How is your soul? How are you doing spiritually? Are you finding life? Are you tired? Or are you full of joy and full of life? So we know we're in trouble when we are asking for pleasures we experience in our lives to satisfy our hearts because these pleasures in this life were never meant to fully satisfy your hearts. That's not the, re- why for, 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 uh, that's not the reason for why they were created. And we get in trouble when we start looking for the creator for what the creator can provide because it was never meant for that. And we get disappointed time and time and time again. So here this morning is an invitation. If you're feeling tired, if you're feeling lonely, if the things that you've done in the past and you're currently doing, you feel like it haunts you and you can't be free from them, that you've been chasing, and, and uh, you've been chasing things and desires and pleasures in this life that ultimately leave you dissatisfied and emptied and rejected, that you're not alone. You're not alone in, in your struggle. God knows you. And it's more specifically, God has placed you in a church because he knows that your journey to sexual purity is really a whole community thing, that we're not meant to hide in shame, but to share with those around you that you trust, to be prayed over, to share that with one another so that we can be part of that wholeness. You're not called to fight alone. And one of my prayers here is as a church, we won't talk about these topics in laughing giggle, but we will actually wrestle with the deep things of life, that we can be honest with each other. We can be honest with each other in our pains and in our hurts, and that's a call to action for all of us, that we're all part of having God, being used by God to break the chains of shame and bondage and towards healing. And what's even more, that whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever it is you're dealing with, whatever you're ashamed of, whatever it is that no one else has ever heard of and no one else ever knows about, whatever that is, that's exactly what Christ died for. That's exactly what Christ has come to die for, for you, to heal you, to remove from you so can you experience new life. So there are even more questions I could be asking. They're more practical. I'd love to chat with you afterwards. Questions like when you, if you are struggling, there's practical ways. Like where is it that you fall? What were you doing when you fell? Uh, what were you struggling with? What were you feeling in the moment of that sexual struggle? What is it? What's going on here? There's deeper meanings to that that's connected to hurts and pains. But the main point here this morning is that you don't have to hide in fear and in guilt because the cross of Jesus Christ welcomes you in and says you're a loved child, you're a loved son, you're a loved daughter, no matter what it is that you've gone through, you're loved so much more than you know. Because of that, flee 
from whatever it is that destroys you. Flee from the sexual immorality. Glorify God with your bodies, but run towards the cross. There is no more hiding with God because he knows all things. That in, your, in our sin, in our shame, in our weakness, I don't need to hide. I don't need to fear God because as we stand before a holy God, he's standing there saying, you're loved and you're known. Come, receive rest and find joy in me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, that you are holy and righteous and good. But you're not a God that shames us, but you're a God that welcomes us in to your holy presence to be loved by you. So, Father, I pray for anyone here that's struggling, that's questions, that's feeling ashamed down and out, that holds on a burden and a secret that's been eating them from the inside out. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would, re that you would remove it as you said, Lord, in your word, as far as the east is from the west, so, so far you have removed our transgressions from us. So, Father, in this moment, I pray for freedom for all of us, that we will lean closer to you in your word this morning and when we find joy. And, Lord, we pray for our church. We pray for our society. We pray for Vancouver that all of us in this topic will experience wholeness, that we will ultimately find joy in you, our ultimate pleasure. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.